Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 31. It is April 12th, uh, 2023, and the time is about 2.30 uh, on the west coast of the United States. Today we have four topics to discuss, a bit of a, a, bit of a smorgasbord, sort of all over the place. Uh, the first point is is the Q1 2023 scorecard, which is actually a cumulative scorecard from how well my predictions or when I've gone out on a limb have proven to be. Uh, at the moment, uh, I've made 22 of them, not including one or two I'm going to make today. And nine of them were true. Five of them were false, and which gives me a batting average, if you will, of 642 or a percentage of 64.2 and eight are still open. And when I say uh, I'm uh, wrong, I mean, even in like in February where I said 50 basis points, I could have sort of counted, my, counted myself as being half right with a 25 or something. I'm not facing it straight <laughs> head on. Uh, that was a incorrect, uh, an incorrect prediction. Uh, the most interesting prediction coming up is I maintain for months now that we'll see a 25 basis point increase in May by the FOMC in the United States, and uh, I haven't changed that at all. Uh, virtually every every house on Wall Street is investment house on Wall Street has changed their tune three, four, five, six times in some cases. It's a bit ridiculous. I've held firm to that, and I think it makes sense. Given the I think it made sense. I think it still makes sense given the overall direction of the economy. So scorecard, I would say not doing too bad, just under uh, right two-thirds of the time. The second point uh, is an interesting one in contrast to the third, which is a, a BTC one. The second is a pure fiat one or TradFi, traditional finance one. It's the US CPI, which was fascinating to watch today. And it's almost, it's, it is hilarious to watch uh, fiat markets because the news came out, the headline number was a little bit low, and so the the S&P jumps up almost a full percentage point, and then people actually read the details and start thinking about it, and it closes down almost half a percentage point. And not, not to be too hard on traders, but you can actually see why. Because the, addition, the original number is that CPI is up 5%. That's actually good because 5% is a decrease from what we've seen, and that's always a wonderful thing to see. But then you start digging in and you go, wait a minute, this isn't that good. Because core CPI, and core CPI, keep in mind, is the overall CPI number uh, with, without food and energy costs. So it, it's general, and the food and energy are taken out because they're highly volatile. So this should give you a better core reading of where the underlying inflation number, the consumer price index number is, it was up 5.6%. And that is the first time in two years that the core CPI has exceeded the CPI. That's pretty frightening. Those are year-on-year -year numbers, but that's really of great concern. Now, on a month-to-month -month basis, core CPI was up 0.4%, versus 0.5% the month before, it's still, it, so it, it, it went down from a month-to-month -month basis, but it exceeded CPI on a year-on-year -year basis. The moral of the story is inflation has come down from its highs in the U.S., but it's now going to be more stubborn. It's going to be more difficult to shake in inflation 
out of the economy. On the upside, however, it's really only been about seven months since the first 75-bit basis point increase. So that is the one that's hitting the economy now. We have three more that have to percolate through, and that hasn't happened yet. So those are big increases. That's two and a quarter percent altogether of the three pending ones where the effect hasn't been felt that much. So hopefully that it will be big enough to bring down uh, CPI uh, across the board, bring down inflation across the board, but it's uh, it's still a bit uh, a bit early to judge. Now there was another statistical anomaly in the numbers because if you go back, if you think about these these numbers, it's year on year. So if a year ago you had a very strange month, a very strange event, then that that makes the readings this year, a year on, a bit less certain. And what did we have happen a year ago in March? Obviously, that was the first full month after Russia invaded Ukraine. Energy prices spiked at that point in time. Core inflation takes out energy prices. So that kind of explains why core exceeded the CPI by 60 basis points. But it also means that in general, the numbers uh, are going to, from here on out, as the world was absorbing like the grain crisis and other things, the year-on-year measures are going to be a bit strange. And it's actually really tough to find a good comparable because before 2022, when you had the invasion, you had COVID for two years. So you really have to go to 2019 to find a good comparable number to 2023. But so much else has changed in that period of time you know, in terms of, you know, supply chain crisis came and went, everything else. Honestly, the best comparison is 19 and 23. And you see that more and more statistically because first COVID, then the Russian, the Russian war on Ukraine. Uh, but it start, so it starts to make these numbers difficult to compare, yet that's all we have. So uh, the next 11, 12 months, and probably not really that long, probably the next eight or nine months until the economic impact or most of the economic impact of Russia invading the Ukraine filtered through the global economy. Only then will we have a decent starting point for, excuse me, for comparison. So the CPI numbers, which you have to go off of, that's all the FOMC has, everyone's going to look at them. There's really a big footnote to them now because of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So we'll see what happens. I think inflation will improve between now and the end of the year, but not as much as the equities market markets in the United States appear to be pricing in. The third point is related to that, and that is BTC hit the amazing mark of 30K. Now, keep in mind, it still puts it at less than half of its ATH or all-time high, but statist- statistically, it's a very important number because it wasn't that long ago people were talking about BTC hitting 12 or 14. Uh, one of the predictions I was correct in was that what I call the the forced uh, capitulation of FTC in the middle uh, of FTX rather in the middle of November when BTC hit 15.6k. That was indeed the bottom, and uh, we called that one right right on very precisely. But I didn't expect it to move up to 30K so quickly. Here it is April. My end of year prediction is 45K for BTC. And that's one of the ones that's still open, obviously. But the rationale behind BTC hitting 30K, the reasons why that's happened are really quite interesting. Because at the same time, BTC has skyrocketed uh, 
uh, ETH has not moved up nearly as much and nor has the rest of the market. So that means as a corollary, BTC dominance, which is the percentage of, of Bitcoin in the overall crypto market cap, has just skyrocketed. It was 38 at the beginning of the year. A month ago, it was just over 40. It's now 47.2. In other words, almost half of the capital market cap of the entire crypto ecosystem is represented by Bitcoin. Now, at one point in time, that was quite normal when Bitcoin was the only game in town or one of the only games in town after ETH, Ethereum, and a couple other tokens were introduced. But it's been a long time since, since Bitcoin was up at the 47 level, and it's still increasing. The reason for that touched on a little bit earlier, but it's, it's really an example of Bitcoin going back to its roots, where you know, if you look at Bitcoin as being an ex, a result, an extension of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, where it, the, that crisis shook a lot of people's faith in the, the fiat, the traditional financial system, Bitcoin arose out of that. People want to find an alternative to the financial system. Well, guess what? We're starting to move back to that. Ironically, when a lot of financial institutions have, in, have invested in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has become a source of risk diversification in that regard. The proof in that is if you take a look at what happened right when SVB, Signature, Silvergate all went down, there was a uh, last month, there was quite a drop in BTC, it went down to just looking at the exact number now. Uh, sorry, I've got to go back a little bit further. I've got to look at four hour candles. It dropped for a moment below 20K to 19.6K. And it had been above 20K for uh, well over a month before that. So it dropped down. And then you had the event that had to happen for crypto to move up, fiat moving down, I've explained before the four reasons why I think that uh, crypto is going to outperform fiat, crypto assets are going to outperform fiat assets. But the fourth one is the only one that really matters, because whatever argument you want to make, if the two are correlated, if, if crypto is correlated to equities, you're not going to have a big, by definition, a big diversion in the performance. That diversion, that plunge in correlation from 0.85 to 0.25 or less happened immediately after the bank crisis. And it happened for a very ironic reason. And it happened because uh, folks lost some faith or worried about a banking crisis, a core belief in the fiat economic system. People are saying, okay, now some people said we're going to move into crypto, but they had a problem. Normally they would have moved into stable coins. Stable coins, which from one perspective are the most hypocritical, blatantly hypocritical, hypocritical aspect of crypto, because if crypto is an alternative to the fiat system, stable coins are tied to fiat currencies. How have you left the, the uh, system behind if you're dependent on it? So what happens with what happened with stable coins at this moment was because Circle, which issues USDC, had $3.3 billion, only about 5% of its assets, but still, it was significant enough. The fact that it had any in Silvergate Bank as it went bankrupt was frightening to a lot of people. USDC lost its peg. It went down about 85 cents to the dollar. It quickly recovered once the FDIC said it would insure bank accounts over $250,000. And think about this. You have an FDIC decision directly affecting a stablecoin losing its peg. So it regains the peg after the FDIC extends that policy. 
but faith in stable coins, all stable coins, is shaken. And if you recall, you know, it was only about 10 months ago where uh, Terra Luna lost, an, al- an algorithmic stable coin lost its valuation at a dollar. It wasn't really a peg, but let's call it that. And every other algorithmic stable coin collapsed. That's in the last 12 months. People have short memories, but not that short. And now you see real asset or pegged stable coins also losing their peg. People don't want to invest in stable coins anymore. So they moved into actual crypto tokens. So they left the fiat ecosystem finally completely behind. But where are you going to invest? Are you investing in something speculative in BNB when Binance seems to be under threat from U.S. regulators? Where are you going to go? You're going to go into the blue chip. And the crypto ecosystem really is divided into three categories. You have BTC, which is its own pure, far and away the best blue chip. You have ETH, which is kind of trying to cross the gap from uh, alts, which is where everybody else is, to uh, crypto, to, or rather to Bitcoin to become a real blue chip. And then you have the alts, which is everything else. So people are not going to, if they're, if they're running to safety, they're going to not run to the alts. They're going to not even run to ETH. They're going to run to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin not only saw its correlation plunge res- with respect to fiat assets, the correlation with respect to ETH and alts also plunged, which is why that over the last three months you've had Bitcoin dominance increased by almost 10 percentage points, an absolutely mind-bogglingly big increase. In fact, during the core of that, right after the banking crisis, Bitcoin equaled its record for dominance increasing. There have been a number of periods of time where it's increased, and so we haven't, over the last month, we haven't broken that record, but still it's increasing very, very steadily, and this hasn't happened for years. So this is quite a unique event that we're seeing That's why Bitcoin's gone to 30. And once such a movement starts, it feeds on its own momentum, particularly when you had the UBS uh, forced uh, takeover of Credit Suisse. And you've had other rumblings, especially in the United States, but in other places as well, where the real estate market is really going to get hammered because office uh, vacancy rates are at 50%. There's $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that has to be financed between now and the end of 2025. I think that's plenty of time for the economic system to absorb it. But there are real problems in certain sectors of real estate, especially uh, office space threatened by work from home and commercial retail, which is threatened by e-commerce. Those trends uh, aren't really new although work from home was obviously accelerated from by COVID, it looks like the pendulum is not going to swing all the way back. Work from home is here to stay. It's a permanent aspect of the labor environment. And that means that the demand for office space until regular expansion takes it up is going to be much lower than it has been historically. Big problem, big problem for a lot of companies clearly can extend to the banking sector because banks are being squeezed by long duration bonds that have very low interest rates. So, to folks who are relatively sophisticated, and there are a lot of folks like that out there, they are also looking to crypto, or many of them are looking to crypto, as a good good source of diversification. And that means that we're going to see BTC have a lot of strength because it's gone back to its roots. It is an alternative to the fiat finance system, or viewed as an alternative to the fiat finance system, and it's developing legs that it's just never seen before 
separate from uh, separate from the rest of the sector. If you look at March, for instance, Bitcoin was up 23%, Ethereum was up 16%, and the rest of the market was up 13%. That's just an enormous, enormous difference. Said another way, BTC was up almost twice as much as altcoins taken collectively, and many of them were actually down. So fascinating development, and I suspect it will continue. If my 45K prediction is wrong, it will not be too high. It's virtually certain to be too low if it's off, but I'm still happy with it. I don't change my predictions, as you have already seen, um, at all, frankly. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And we may know well in advance, but uh, I'm not going to change it. The fourth and last point is a prediction. The U.S. government will shut down this summer. The last time that happened was in 2019. It shut down for 35 days. Some of you may remember that. It was really only, really only half of the government that shut down because the, the half that, that earned money was allowed to stay open. It was very funny because my wife was actually being sworn in as a U.S. citizen that very month. And I thought, oh, no, it's going to get delayed. And then there's going to be a huge backlog and it's going to take months for this to happen. Not at all. She was sworn in uh, as scheduled in January when all the rest of the government was shut down because the folks that take care of, of, of naturalization, which when it's called when you become a citizen, they charge, they charge for their services. They actually make money. Uh, what used to be called the Immigration and Naturalization Service, now called ICE, they make money. So they stayed open and 5,000 people, it was an amazing event, were sworn in on that January. So it stayed open. This case, it'll probably be not the case, but the, that will be, in, as then it was called a shutdown, even though it was 100%, the government will shut down this summer. Why? Because the 31.4 trillion, more than $30 trillion U.S. debt market cap was hit in January. And Janet Yellen, who used to be the head of the Fed, is now the Secretary of Treasury. She came out and said, look, we can use extraordinary measures to kick the can down the road a little bit. Essentially, the U.S. government borrowing from other, pot, other pots of money because it can't borrow anymore. It's reached its cap. The U.S. has this stupid rule where every once in a while, Congress raises the cap as opposed to just saying, hey, Congress, you have to pass budgets. Let's just pass a budget. We'll understand the debt increase. And you borrow what money you have to based on this budget that Congress passed. No, there has to be a separate vote where Congress votes to increase the debt ceiling. And this lets everybody, you know, try to show how strong they are or anti-debt they are or everything else. So you have people who vote for a budget that blows out the debt ceiling, but then vote against increasing the debt ceiling, particularly in the way the politics are aligned now on the Republican side. So it's the it's just total hypocrisy for this to happen. It's an absolute stupid rule, but it lets uh, politics posture and think that they that they are, are reaching their reaching their base and and encouraging people. As a fact of the matter, if you look historically, when there have been shutdowns, and they happen every every once in a while, there's one in 13, one in 19. The party that refused to compromise uh, in 2019 and this year, the Republican Party. 2019, the Republican Party got hammered at the elections at the next elections. And that's almost always the case. In fact, I think it actually is always the case that the party that refuses to compromise suffers at the polls. Then you can readily understand why if a, if a party forced the government to shut down. Anyway, the extraordinary, extraordinary measures will run out 
sometime this summer. And it's probably going to be July, but no one's really sure because it depends on a whole bunch of moving parts, what tax receipts are, how much the U.S. has to borrow under these, quote, extraordinary measures, unquote, really don't have a date. As we get closer to the period, of course, we'll get to one. And if there is no money, the government will shut down. Uh, There are certain critical uh, services that continue. Uh, the military continues uh, certain uh, like border borders, uh, border, the immigration continues because people are still flying to and from the U.S. But about 90 percent of the people who work for the government will cease getting paid. They'll stop working for the government. They'll go home and it will uh, and that that uh, blockage will last until Congress raises the debt ceiling. Uh, I think it will last a while this time. It was extraordinary. It's the longest shutdown ever in 2019 because of those personal reasons. I remember it very vividly. Uh, but this summer, we could see another month-long shutdown, not a short-term one for two reasons. One, it's in the summer, and folks are gone. They don't really rely that much on the government. Uh, the Congress is usually out of session anyway. So we're going to see a long shutdown. And the other reason is, the sides, the Republicans and Democrats in the United States, have become more entrenched than they were before. Compromise is really, really difficult to find. Uh, there are times in the history of the U.S. when it's been more difficult. Not a lot of them, though. This is an extraordinarily difficult, uh, an extraordinarily polarized Congress. So they're not going to compromise easily, and the Republicans think they're winning with their base when they uh, when they block the increase in the debt ceiling, and and the Democrats refuse to do so, and ultimately the Democrats will, will think, uh, probably correctly, that the longer the Republicans refuse to compromise, the worse it's going to get for them, and be for them in 2024 when you have congressional elections, but also much more importantly a presidential election. So there's a huge amount. There's always a lot of politics in in raising the debt ceiling and a government shutdown. It's even worse. It will be even worse uh, this time for all the reasons I just mentioned. So there's another uh, prediction for you. Uh, As far as the interest rates in predictions, still predicting the 25 in May, as I said earlier. For June, I'm sorry, I'm wimping out. I don't have any idea whether there's going to be an increase in June or not. It's clear to me that it's going to be considered, but because we're at a bit of an inflection point here, will inflation The base, the core inflation, which is around 5%, will it go down uh, enough to justify not increasing in June? I just can't see it. Plus, any sort of prediction is complicated, even more complex, because on the one hand, you have to look at, okay, what's going to happen between now and June? And on the other hand, you have to go look back what happened in May, June, or April, May, and June of last year because of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and what of those, what portion of those statistics that new statistics are going to be compared to were anomalous at that point in time and we won't see those same effects this year. So it's far more complicated. I'm confident in May. Uh, I wimp out in June, but I will repeat a prior prediction and that is we will not see interest rate decreases until 2024 sometime in Q1. And with that, I wish you all a good week. I hope it's fun, interesting, but not too interesting. And we will see you on the, what will it be? The 18th of April. Thank you very much.